Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's episode, we're talking about seagulls. But not just the seagulls that steal your french fries on Stern's Wharf. These seagulls are actually 38 miles off the coast of Santa Barbara on a one square mile uninhabited chunk of land called the Santa Barbara Island. Oh, and the year is 1972. These seagulls became a turning point in the scientific community and the queer community, as in the 70s and in our very own backyard, scientists George Hunt and Molly Warner discovered that 10% of the seagull nests on the island were actually made up of a female-female nesting pair. George and Molly then had their findings published in 1977, and this became a piece of landmark literature that challenged archaic views of homosexuality in the natural world. June is Pride Month, and today on The Indie, I was joined by Lulu Miller, co-host of WNYC's Radio Lab, to talk about the seagulls, the effects it had on science, politics, and the queer community. Here's the interview. Lulu Miller, one of the greatest audio journalists in the industry, an original producer of WNYC's Radio Lab, and now a co-host. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So first and foremost, a phenomenal podcast on Radio Lab by the entire team. I mean, the storytelling was immersive. It was a journey back in time through scientific and legal history. And the indie listeners, you got to check it out. It is such an experience to listen to. Oh, thanks. Yes. And truly a team team effort. It's such a fun show to be a part of because there's like just musicians and producers who love splitting up sound and getting in all this narrative. So um, yeah, it was really fun to make. Absolutely. And it's such a pleasure to listen to. Well, on today's show, I have so many questions, but I first want to give you some room to kind of lay down the context and the history of the landmark scientific study from the 70s that discovered homosexual behavior in seagulls found in the Santa Barbara Islands within the Channel Islands. So I know George Hunt and Molly Warner were 30 miles off the coast in the Santa Barbara Islands when Molly sort of stumbled upon this realization that 10% of the seagull nests in the island had bigger eggs and a greater number of eggs than the others. So Lulu, can you kind of walk us through how this discovery came up? Yeah, and it's such a it's such a neat story of just kind of two researchers who were not going into their their study looking for anything like this. They thought they were just observing how this species of gulls, Laris occidentalis, the western gull, which is essentially just, you know, your clip art seagull. It's the gull that your listeners I'm sure see right, you know, can see right now. Um they were just looking at, you know, this wild colony out on Santa Barbara Island, which, you know, is this rocky, uninhabited, treeless island and it was the early 70s actually when they first went out and George was this young professor, he was an ornithologist making his way 
And he wanted to study the colony, kind of like, you know, Jane Goodall observing primates in the wild. Um, but he had to teach. He had to teach classes. So he left his wife, his then wife, um, they're now divorced, but good friends, Molly, on this island, like on this rock in the middle of the sea. Um, and she was in between jobs. She'd been trained as an anthropologist. And he was essentially like, can you do my field research for me? And so she stayed out there for a couple months. And every day she'd observe the gulls. And one day... As you said, she saw these nests with too many eggs, and it was really puzzling because it seemed kind of anatomically impossible that one bird could lay that many. And long story short, she called George out to the island. They did a dissection because these gulls are um, identical sexually. They're, they, they look exactly the same on the outside. Um, and they discovered that the nest was two females. And then they checked all these nests with extra eggs. They were all two females. And they weren't just roommates, like they were mating. As they, Once they learned they were females and they could observe who was who, they saw that they would mount each other, they would mate. And then when for the chicks that did hatch, um, they would raise them and they'd take turns incubating and tending to the nest and bringing food. And um, when they initially observed this, they were completely stunned and they did a count of, you know, over th a thousand nesting pairs of birds, about 10 percent of them were uh, female, female, same sex paired. And they would, you know, they were monogamous at that point. They would, no one was suggesting that the two females figured out how to reproduce. Um, but they, one of that, you know, they'd go and get fertilized at another spot on the island. But after that, they'd become um, monogamous, female, female bonded. And yeah, and they realized it was about 10% of the birds on the island. And they tried to publish on this. And initially, they were actually rejected by um, the small ornithological journal where they sent it because at that time, science just really didn't think homosexuality happened in nature. Um, and so the the editors of that journal just said, this is too unusual. This doesn't make sense. Um, and so they went back and they got more data and they looked for a bunch more years. And then they saw it was also happening on Anacapa Island. And now it was over a thousand birds and they had new research assistants and more photographs and it was clearly happening. And they submitted it to the journal Science, which is like heavy hitter in the scientific world. And they accepted it. And it was in um, June of 1977 that this big paper documenting homosexuality in nature came out. And it wasn't the first time ever that that, you know, a scientist had published on it. But it was really the first mainstream study. And it was the first time that the language wasn't calling the behavior an outlier or uh, calling it unnatural. It just said 10 percent of the birds on this island are female, female paired. Hmm. And 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 so then the piece kind of goes on to what happened <laughs> in society and culture and in science after this hit, because it, it hit at a very charged moment in history. Absolutely. And I'm no ornithologist or animal science expert by any means, but this is such an interesting story. I mean, thinking about how this was just kind of stumbled upon and then became this landmark ripple effect in the science community, in the queer community, and had these lasting impacts. And I want to talk about the publication and kind of everything that was happening around that in just a minute. But in the podcast, you talk about how after this was published, there was an abundance of literature that came forward. How were the Santa Barbara seagulls a turning point for the science community? And why weren't any findings published until this point? Oh, I love that question. Yeah. So, I mean, it really is this interesting story of a belief 
a belief that homosexuality is not a part of nature, take kind of being born and then garnering so much power and so much buy-in that scientists, even scientists who really nobly want to look at nature clearly, like they, they almost can't see it. And so just briefly what I mean by that is – um, you know, back in the 12, you know, I think in many ways this belief came from religion back in the 1200s. Thomas Aquinas, the famous philosopher priest, uh, famously wrote that homosexuality was a, quote, crime against nature. And it had been called a sin for a long time, you know, but he was kind of really the first person to put into print this idea to kind of bring nature into the story and point to its kind of supposed objective wrongness by saying it doesn't happen in nature. And that phrase really caught like wildfire. And you see within about 50 years, the phrase crime against nature is in laws all over Western Europe forbidding, you know, banning homosexuality, again, based on this sober sounding, almost scientific thing that it's a crime against nature. It's against nature. Um, but interestingly, that belief also trickles into science. And so what would happen is like every now and then. A scientist would observe, you know, there's in the 1700s, there was an ornithologist who saw it in another species of birds. Or in the 1800s, there were entomologists observing beetles, two little male beetles having having same-sex sex and mating. And it would often cause some kind of scandal. And either a scientist would try to publish on it and then literally be prevented from publishing. And there are notes that have been discovered with like where accounts were cut out of journals or they were just kept in drawers and never published. Or if they did make it onto the literature, they would be adorned with all this language calling it perverse or literally unnatural. And it would often be in a footnote or just kind of put in the margins so far away that oftentimes scientists, even in one discipline like ornithology, would never have heard of it happening in birds. And then weirdly, when Darwin came on the scene, the ideas of evolution end up bolstering this belief that homosexuality shouldn't be a part of nature. Because again, if the whole engine of life is to reproduce, why would you get a creature that can't reproduce? How would that ever be preserved? And so then instead of using words like perverse or unnatural, when homosexuality was spotted in animals and it was seen in rams and it was seen in penguins, all of them wild, not even in the zoo, it would be called like an evolutionary mistake or a Darwinian paradox or puzzle. Again, this assumption that it shouldn't be there. And so it was just this like all these different ways that either it wasn't published or it was actively cut out or it was labeled with words that still made it seem like it shouldn't be happening. Um, and that left scientists like George and Molly totally surprised when they observed it themselves. But again, I think they just kind of, you know, had this fluke of of pushing forward. And also, I think some people have talked about the fact that they were a married couple, a straight married couple probably gave them a little more cred, whereas like in the past when there were when anti-sodomy laws were more intense and you could be in prison, like if you had been a single scientist and you tried to publish on it, other scientists might say, like, why do you have this unnatural interest in it? What agenda are you pushing? So anyway, finally, that was the study that broke through and it was just so well documented and it wasn't one set of creatures. It was hundreds of birds. Um, and so that kind of I think that was just that was the moment that that it did break through. And, and then things changed. Things really changed afterwards. You bring up so many good points. <laughs> I mean, the most famous evolutionary scientist Darwin had his observations being named anomalies or flukes. And then you also mentioned Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, who kind of coined this phrase crime against nature. But 
we talked about how this trickled into laws and, of course, scientific literature. But this rationale of, quote, crime against nature was sort of used by anti-queer groups in the public after the scientific study was published. So what do you know about how the greater public reacted? Yeah, well, so it was the moment it dropped, summer of 1977, happened to be a, you know, particularly charged moment in the sort of gay rights movement in, in queer history because the 60s and 70s in, in America had seen a lot of strides, the, the queer rights movement. Like there were a, a bunch of laws, anti-sodomy or states, anti-sodomy laws were coming down and homosexuality had been declassified as a mental illness, which was huge. That was like a huge moment. And there were certain cities that even began um, putting in place queer protection. So like anti-discriminatory practices, like you can't be fired from your job just because you're gay. And so it was this moment of like huge strides. And then it was in the summer of 1977, right before this paper dropped, actually, that the anti-gay movement had kind of a huge moment and a huge victory and a huge lash back. And that was led by Anita Bryant, who was, um, a, you know, a spokesperson for the Florida Citrus Commission. And she was a singer and an evangelical Christian. And she in Miami-Dade County had um, launched this big organized campaign to vote to get voters to come out to strip away gay protections in Miami. And she won. And a lot of her language was kind of this idea that she would invoke nature. It was this old Aquinas idea. And she was known to say, you know, it's a, an abomination against nature. And it's so clearly wrong, despite what society might be saying and how laws are changing. She, she said, you know, even barnyard animals don't do the disgusting things homosexuals do. And so she, it was this kind of tactic of in, uh, in pointing to the supposed objective wrongness of bringing nature back into the fight. Um, and invoking the even potential danger of of queer people by pointing to nature. And that was hugely successful. And she won. Um, you know, she got people to come out and vote to strip away gay protections, actually two to one. And then it was like literally two weeks later that this huge mainstream study dropped showing some pretty natural looking evidence of homosexuality. And so George and Molly actually got all these angry letters and phone calls. There were editorials written kind of questioning their intents and their work. And there were even ramifications all the way up into Congress um, where there were some conservative congressmen who were so angered by the fact that George had received a government grant from the National Science Foundation um, to keep studying the birds that they fought to try to like pull funds and and keep him from continuing to study this. And it held up the, the NSF budget uh, for a while. And it touched a nerve because I think it, you know, at that point, there were still a majority of states had um, in the U.S. had bans against homosexuality, legal bans, many of which still contained that phrase, crime against nature. Um, and so to have science paint a different story, it was complicated. Um, on the queer side of things, it was really celebrated. I mean, there were like songs written. There was a song called Lesbian Seagull that was written uh, written about a year later. There were um, plays written. There was like a, we talked to a playwright who wrote a play about the seagulls. There were boat rides organized out to go see the gulls and kind of commune with them. Uh, there were there were comics published in all kinds of newspapers um, showing these gay seagulls pooping in Anita Bryant's eyes. So they were it was like this weird moment where science, this obscure ornithological journal was like hotly a part of culture, causing anger, causing joy. It was a really interesting little moment. 
And I want to talk about the culture aspect in just a minute. But previously, you were bringing up the ties between science and politics and the queer community. So this is a perfect segue into talking about how queer rights and progressive politics are oftentimes coupled together. But what are your thoughts on why a turning point in science like this kind of has shown the world, hey, look, we're we're going to refute you and show you that there is actually this naturalness in homosexuality in nature, in our animal kingdom. But then there was also all these anti-queer victories in the courts, like with Bowers v. Hardwick in the mid-80s. So what are your thoughts on the ripple effects more politically that this discovery had? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think I went into this when I first heard about the gulls. I'm a queer lady. I'm married to a woman. We have two little kids. I had never heard about queer, about same sex, female paired wild animals, you know, mating, raising kids in the wild. I hadn't even as a science reporter. I had not heard of that. So it was new to me. And I was really excited about it. And I I wondered, like, did this how much did this change politics? How much did this, was this at all in conversation with these laws? Did it threaten them in any way if we were in this black and white language calling it a crime against nature? Did an awareness of queerness in nature change that? And the truth was, it just really didn't, it didn't permeate. I think that, you know, in Bowers v. Hardwick, 10 years after this study came out, um, that was like a time that, you know, homosexuality was came to the Supreme Court. It was almost overturned, but the justices voted five to four not to. And again, they invoked this language that homosexuality was unnatural and the prohibition had ancient roots. And and so, again, you, you hear Aquinas's belief, his language, this idea that it's unnatural is still is still a part of what kept the laws and the bans um and this, you know, discriminatory legislation on on the books. So it's so in that way, like it wasn't it's not like it convinced anyone. It's not like it did much for refuting laws or changing anybody's minds. Um, actually, and we didn't put this in the piece, but Anita Bryant was was asked about the science of of queer animals. Um, a couple years after the study came out, she was for some reason interviewed in Playboy magazine, and the and and she brought up the idea that like it's unnatural, it doesn't happen in animals. And the interviewer did a kind of gotcha and said, "Well, actually, science recently has shown it does." And and then she just said, "Oh, I've never heard of that, and that doesn't change my conviction that it's not natural because you know homosexuals can't reproduce, so there's still this." natural, you know, there's still a built-in unnaturalness of it. So I, I, again, I think it's like it didn't really have much effect in terms of changing anybody's mind. Although, I don't know if I should talk about this yet, It the, the gulls do make a very surprise, interesting appearance in Lawrence v. Texas, the Supreme Court case in 2003 that finally did overturn the remaining bans on queer sex. And that was a kind of surprising discovery. Um, which I can talk about now or later, whatever's better. Yep, I was just going to bring up the 2003 Lawrence v. Texas case. And like you mentioned, homosexual seagulls were written about in a briefing. These seagulls of the 70s sort of became this mascot or this symbol for queer visibility and acceptance. So please do go into this. Yeah, so in 2003, they weren't at marriage yet, but they were at sex. So they were talking about like, can, you know, the question was, can two consenting adults have 
gay sex in the privacy of their own home. And in many states, that was still a, a crime. You could be in prison up to 20 years. And so, you know, the argument that was made, it was talked about issues of privacy and everything. But there was a brief that was filed that day, um, actually by the APA, the American Psychological Association, um, who, again, in the past had had called queerness a, 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 a mental illness. And now they were kind of coming together with this big brief that likely a lot of the justices did read or at least had their clerks read. Um, and they had a whole segment. They had a whole section <laughs> saying, um, you know, these laws were calling them crimes against nature. But we can't say that this is such a deep part. You know, they said it's a part of every human culture all across the world, all throughout history and a deep part of the natural world. And then they cited this book um, at the center of which is a huge study you know, a huge write-up complete with illustrations on the seagulls. And the book was basically just a a big review of everything that science has learned about queerness in nature. And the seagull study was really the one that kind of was what what people in biology call it, like a foundational study. It was the one that opened the floodgates to us studying more and learning more. And so when I stumbled across that, I was like, oh, it's so funny that, you know, whether that changed a single justice's mind or influence their decision? Probably not. But I do love knowing that the seagulls were kind of there that day when this huge historic win, this ban, this millennia old ban was lifted. um, And they were kind of like cheering from the rafters and nature finally had a chance to break through and tell Aquinas he was wrong and all of us who believed him were wrong. And it's like he, he dragged nature into the fight in 1200 and and then the gulls were there on the day that that nature kind of finally got to speak back. So there's just a little I don't again, I don't think it changed anyone's mind, but it's an interesting little image. Yeah, I mean, the seagulls were absolutely there that day. I love that story. And that was one of probably my favorite tidbits about the Radio Lab <laughs> podcast. You know, you can just kind of imagine them peering down over the justices <laughs> that day. So Totally. I think of them like flying through the rafters and just like, ah! <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So in in the pod, you also mentioned quite a few other species were observed. So can you kind of go into now where we are with looking at homosexual sex or or mating within species? Yeah, so it really I mean, I'd have to have so so long. It's it's really at this point, thousands of studies have been documented. Thousands of different species have been shown to have some sort of homosexual mating or parenting or 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 um, nesting or pairing um, in nature. And, and again, most of that, almost all this work came out after George and Molly's study and this the kind of scientific establishment opened its heart or opened its journals to to work like this instead of keeping it off. And so, I mean, it's literally like all kinds of things from bonobos to bats to bottlenose dolphins to manatees to butterflies to lizards to wild rams to domesticated cattle to like it is it has been observed in pretty much like every corner of the planet every branch of the animal kingdom from bugs up to birds um, and beyond. And, you know, like a, a, a few of my, I guess like a couple of my favorite examples, the one that really, the two that really blew my mind in the piece at, at a certain point, we kind of, we, cause Radiolab is a, you know, we're, we're all 
sound nerds. So we constructed this whole parade of like different animals and animal sounds and different scientists telling us about different animals. But the one that that really blew my mind was it's a little lizard and it's called the New Mexico whiptail lizard. It's just a little lizard with stripes. And that society, that species of lizard is all females which I didn't even know you could have a species without male. And so they mount each other. They do the mating thing. But what's wild is that, you know, a lot of it turns out a lot of creatures do have the ability to reproduce asexually. So basically create clones of themselves. And so that's how this species carries on. But what they have found a way to do is that after they mount one another, these females mount one another, it like for some reason it increases their fertility and they do this kind of internal genetic recombination that makes it so that they don't actually spit out a, a clone um, or pop they don't really, you know pop out a clone. And so they are not as genetically homogenous as you might think. Um, and so they're they're genetically diverse. That makes them stronger to whatever life is going to throw their way. And they appear to be here to stay. Um, and so, again, the birds, the seagulls weren't having babies, but that actually doesn't mean nature doesn't allow for that. And so that that one just blew my mind. There are all these studies in, in bottlenose dolphins about how males uh, will mate with each other, like, and they'll form bonds that stay intact longer than like a mother-child bond. And those male-bonded dolphins, which are mating with each other in the water, actually have the strongest hunting alliance. So they end up getting more prey, which is highly adaptive and successful, um, is, is advantageous evolutionarily. This similar thing has been shown in bonobos. Like same-sex mating can really help with conflict resolution. So if a little bit of honey shows up in chimps, you might see them all fight and tear each other apart. But in bonobos, they'll just like have sex with each other. And then in this postcoital oxytocin bliss, which is a bonding chemical, they'll share the honey. So it like helps conflict resolution during resource scarcity. It, it, you know, there are, there don't always have to be, and there haven't always been observed this, but in a lot of species, there've been all these evolutionary benefits, like the conflict resolution, stress relief, strengthening social bonds, which is really good for fitness, strengthening hunting alliances. And then, uh, and then the last really amazing thing is that there's been a lot of work showing how same-sex mating and pairing can actually be really helpful for the survival of offspring. Um, and that that kind of blew my mind, too. So it's a uh, yeah, we're now 50 years almost after this study with the gulls. I think the main understanding is that queerness is a deep part of nature. It's often can help at the species level, can can help a species survive um, and that that these aren't just outliers these aren't just mistakes this this seems to really be a phenomenon that you see all across the planet and and that for me was a huge paradigm shift because I did not realize that going into this reporting yeah and I want to talk more about the paradigm shift that you mentioned so you have a wife and two little boys and being a journalist for this story what were your thoughts and feelings and emotions <laughs> while bringing this case to light during Pride Month? Yeah. I mean, I really, it's interesting. Again, like I was not raised with religion. My dad is a scientist. I I didn't, you know, I, I grew up at a time where being queer was a lot more accepted than it ever historically has been. And, and yet I think I realized in reporting this that I had believed a version of Aquinas's belief, which is that like, I, I thought homosexuality was just a human thing. I would occasionally hear stories about gay penguins at the zoo or whatever, 
But I literally thought that was a byproduct of captivity. Like, And scientists actually even talk about this. They used to call it the zoo effect, um, which is essentially saying, oh, well, the penguins, they just didn't have enough options or they're kind of like – in the way that you see a wild lion looks all sad and sick. Like I, I thought homosexuality in zoos was, was again, a product of captivity, but not something you'd ever see in the wild. And so while I felt like I deserved rights and should be a, you know, queerness should definitely be a part of human society, I just didn't think I was a, I was a part of the tree of life or the natural story. And so for me, the gulls was kind of my way in and, and seeing evidence of it beyond a zoo out in the wild. And then when I learned just how just how much has been discovered by science in the last 50 years, and when I started reading all these scientific studies and books compiling different things, I really kind of got obsessed because I just didn't know. It was like falling down a rabbit hole and kind of having my world turned topsy-turvy. And I was specifically like particularly interested in the studies where it showed like for instance in black swans um these swans it a lot of them for some reason homosexuality is like the most common in birds like about 20 percent of bird species have been observed to some of them have like homosexual behavior and in these black swans um in the same sex parenting nests like in in the heterosexual nests 30% of the little baby swans, the cygnets, will be successfully fledged. In the homosexual pairs, 80% of those babies will successfully fledge. So in that species, it's like they're better parents. And I found myself like really drawn to the studies where we saw how like <laughs> homosexual animals helped a community or a species. Um, and And at a certain point, my wife actually was like... <laughs> what is your obsession? Like it kind of annoyed her and she was kind of always eye rolling her eyes at it. She's a, she's a very funny person and, and she would just always be like, what is going on with all these queer animal books? Like, what are you on about? And um, yeah. And then I, I finally ended up talking to her about it. And, and I think part of her concern for my sort of interest in it was that I was I was seeking something beyond knowledge, like I was seeking some sort of validation by by wanting to find it in nature and wanting to point to it in nature. And I think, you know, we talk about it in the piece, but I think at first I I didn't think she was onto something, but but then I, I think she was. And she kind of pointed out what was a little bit wrongheaded about what I was doing, which was that to her, she saw my my need to find the, these animals and my delighting in them. She saw it as a little bit concerning because she was like, does that mean the people telling you you're unnatural are getting through? Like, are you holding this up as counter evidence and as a refutation? And so we, we kind of go into that in the piece. Well, before we wrap up this conversation, is there anything else you would like to add? Well, I do have to tell you the plot twisty end of the story, which is that uh, these days... If you're to go out, you know, I know your listeners are, are in the area. If they were to go visit Santa Barbara Island, they likely would not find uh, too many homosexual gulls because for some reason, the same sex pairing seemed to die off. So there's still gulls out there, but they seem to be hetero now. And when I learned that, that was kind of what sparked the conversation with my wife because I got sort of deflated. And the idea, the researcher, they don't know. And again, they're you can't tell them apart visually, so you never know. But 
the researcher's sense is what happened there is that actually back in the 70s, chemicals like DDT were getting into the male gulls and uh, into both gulls, but affecting the males worse and, and killing them off. And so maybe it was a situation where there were only females, so they had to pair up out of necessity, aka maybe it was kind of a fluky situation. And so in this weird way, like the study that turned the key to this huge like just open the floodgates to all this research that has shown the naturalness of homosexuality in nature may have actually been kind of a fluke. Um, and so that was my sort of um, my lesson in in looking to nature for belonging and for validation, because, of course, and this this was the same sin that Aquinas did and, and sort of what the folly of what Anita Bryant did, like nature is more expansive than our our desires for it. It's it's more expansive than politics. It's more expansive than morality. And um, I think the other thing I kind of finally learned in, in working on this is like <laughs> that we really shouldn't use nature that way. Like don't <laughs> like argue for what you want in the law and, and argue for rights for humans, but but don't bring nature into it. Like nature is always going to be more expansive than we understand. And, and it's not there to just be our pawns and our, our proof. Um, so that's the sort of funny ending and unfortunate ending <laughs> to the tale. You know, that makes sense. I mean, basing um, an entire perspective on seagulls. Not wise. Yeah. Just <laughs> let them be gulls, admire them, uh, hate them, protect your French fries from them and, and, and let them go do your gull thing. But still such a major win for the science community and the queer community. Lulu, this has been amazing. Your reporting and your personal story is so compelling and inspiring. And it was an absolute pleasure to chat with you about everything oh thanks for letting me let, ramble about gulls uh, anytime anytime you need it i'm here <laughs> well if you ever want to come visit the santa barbara that's all for this week and thank you so much for tuning in to the indie for more information and that link to wnyc's radio lab podcast check out the show notes and to stay up to date with the pod be sure to follow us on instagram at the indie pod newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg. And as always, we'll see you next week, Santa Barbara.